Uh, as Matt mentioned, we are going through this uh, series on the book of Acts. And uh, last week, Matt preached on, the, on chapter 7. And if, if you don't know, uh, Luke, who is the author of Acts, he, he likes to structure his, his book uh, geographically. So one of the key verses in the whole book where you will see this is right at the start in chapter 1 when Jesus is with the disciples and he tells them to stay in Jerusalem because they will receive power from on high and they will become his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And up from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 7, everything that has happened so far has been in Jerusalem. But then when we get to chapter 7, which is on the text that Matt preached last week, that's the event that will lead the book to the next movement where they go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Now, if you don't know... Uh, the, the story of the book of Acts, uh, you may read the, the book for the first time, and when you get to chapter 1, you have this, let's say, promise by Jesus in saying, oh, you will, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and you may be very encouraged that the message of Jesus and of the kingdom of God is going to spread. But what Jesus doesn't tell us in chapter 1 is the means by which this message is going to spread. It's only when we get to chapter 7 with the story of Stephen that we see how this happens. And with Stephen, what happens is that he is preaching the message of Jesus, and you have these uh, leaders in Jerusalem who don't like what he's saying, and they bring him before the, the Jewish court, and then they, they ask Stephen, okay, so what is it that you're saying? And Stephen, in that whole chapter, he begins to, uh, he, he gives like a survey of the whole story of the Old Testament, and his point was how the people of God in the past were very unfaithful to God. And that led to not only judgment from God on their part, but also on them persecuting the prophets in the Old Testament. And Stephen finishes his uh, sermon, let's say, saying that, the people in Jerusalem did the same with Jesus. So you can imagine that they didn't like that when they were accused of this. So they get very angry. They take Stephen out of the city. They rip his clothes. They throw his clothes at the feet of one of the leaders whom Luke will describe as a young man named Saul. And... And what follows while they are beginning to stone Stephen is that Stephen has a vision in, in the same way that Daniel has a vision in the Old Testament of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And then the leaders, they get so angry with this that they block their ears 
and they kill him. And our story today is chapter 8, which is uh, the result of chapter 7. So it's similar if you, if you treat chapter 7 as sort of like a movie, and so the whole movie has passed, and then you have that, those last 10 minutes that's like, oh, what's life now that this whole thing went through? Chapter 8 is those last 10 minutes. What happened after this whole thing went through? So what I would like for us to do is to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read the first 25 verses, which will tell us what happened after Stephen was killed by those leaders in Jerusalem. So Acts chapters, chapter 8, it begins like this. And Saul, the young man whom they threw Stephen's clothes at his feet, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And now he'll make a comparison or a contrast between two different people. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay hand, my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samarians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day that we may, we may be able to be gathered here and uh, study your word and think about your word and see what you have to say for our lives uh, in a way that uh, not only impacts us, but it makes us more and more like you. That's what I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have let's say, the last 10 minutes of the story. You know, Stephen is killed, and you have this young Jewish leader called Saul who approved of the whole thing. He's sort of like overseeing that, that whole thing. And then it would make sense for Luke to focus on Saul, or as we will know him later, Paul, because he will be a major person in the story in the second half of the book. But, but Luke, instead, he, he decides to take a small detour and give us a, a little bit of information about what was happening in Samaria at that time. And the question is, why is Luke giving us this extra information about what is happening in Samaria? So first of all, in the first three chapters we see that what happened to Stephen uh, spread and began happening to the church as a whole in Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that more people were killed, but they were at least, at least sent to prison. And, and Saul was overseeing this. Now, what, what's interesting about this is that when, when Stephen is killed, he's killed not because of the great signs and wonders that he was doing, but because of the message that he was preaching. So th that whole persecution is an attempt to stifle the message, to say, don't say this anymore, and you'll be okay. I don't care about the signs and wonders you do. We have a lot of those all around Judea, Samaria, and Holy. But what you're saying is the problem. So don't say this. And they kill Stephen for it. And they begin to put uh, Christians in prison because of this. And so what happens? A lot of people start to flee. They become refugees in some sense. But what's interesting is that this attempt to stifle the message has the opposite effect. Because when you look in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 8 in verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
which is kind of funny for me. Because the attempt to say, okay, we're going to lock this down. It's like a virus. We're going to just quarantine the whole thing, and it's going to be done. And it has the opposite effect. It just spreads, and it begins to spread in Samaria. It begins to spread in Judea. And then Luke decides to focus on this spread, and he will go to Samaria. He will lead us to Samaria to look at one of the leaders there, Philip, who had been appointed by the apostles in chapter 6 to take care of the church. Now, Philip, he goes to Samaria, and what the Bible says is, is that he went to the city and he proclaimed to them the Christ. So the message continues. He proclaimed to them the Christ. And as a result of his proclaiming, the crowd, and crowd is going to be an important element in this whole story. The crowd pay attention to what he's saying. And they see not only what he's saying, but what he's doing as well. So uh, Philip's, let's say, ministry in Samaria has to do with the message he's speaking, as well as the signs and wonders that he's doing. So they have both things. And the question is, what, what is the result of this? When, when Philip begins to preach the word and begins to do the, the signs and wonders, the crowd is paying attention. They are interested in what he's saying. And a lot of things happen. In verse 7 says, Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many of them. People who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And the result is that there is much joy in the city. So the message that those leaders thought was dangerous was actually bringing people joy. So maybe it's not dangerous. Maybe it's the leaders who are the problem in the story. But then Luke decides to focus on another person, a man called Simon. Now, the way Luke describes Simon, he says he was a, a man who previously practiced magic in the city. Now, this was something that was quite common uh, in those regions. Even in the Greek context, you had, uh, let's say, magicians or sorcerers who would practice their magic in the Greek temples to the gods. But you also have these sorcerers who the people of the temples didn't like very much, because they would say that they would only do those magics if you paid them money. So it, it had a lot of like financial gain attached to the, to the wonders. And what was, what's interesting about Simon is that he not only practiced magic in the city, but he amazed the people of Samaria, saying, and you can see how humble he was, saying that he himself was somebody great. And the people agreed with him because it's the, they would say, this man is the power of God that is called the great. And they all paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So you see this word amazing, amazing, appearing many times. Because Simon is, let's say, Simon the Amazing. Because he amazes everyone. 
with all these signs and wonders. But then in chapter 12, uh, verse 12, then the story changes because now you have Philip in the city spreading the message of Jesus attached with signs and wonders. So in verse 12 it says, but when they believed Philip, and what was Philip doing? Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So these people who were amazed by Simon, the amazing, they now are amazed by Philip and the message of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And then what's interesting is that like, you, you keep thinking like, okay, so how did Simon react to this whole thing? In verse 13, it says, even Simon himself believed. So that's a twist in the story. And after being baptized, he was even baptized, he continued with Philip. So he stays with Philip. But then we have a small detail in the story. And seeing the signs and great miracles or works of power, let's say, performed, he was amazed. So Simon the Amazing becomes Simon the Amazed because he's not the center of the story anymore. But at the same time, what Luke is preparing us in the story is to see that Simon has always been obsessed with power and magic and signs and wonders. And now he hears Philip and he sees the signs and wonders that Philip is doing. And what Simon becomes amazed by, at least what Luke tells us, is not what Philip was preaching and teaching, but was the power that was being portrayed. So Simon is still very much in that mindset of, oh, look at this power. Why? Because he, before he was the power of God that was called the great. And now there is this new power and he's very intrigued by it. And then we get to the part that I actually want to get in chapter 8. Because you remember when the persecution came, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and everyone else was sort of scattered, scattered to Samaria and Judea. So in verse 14 it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the apostles are in Jerusalem and they hear about what's happening in Samaria. That people are hearing the message of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. And they are believing and they are being baptized. And the apostles decide to send Peter and John to go there. And to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit like they did in chapter 2. In the day of Pentecost. 
which was quite wonderful and had a lot of signs. It was a very grand experience that they, uh, that they experienced. And then it says, uh, verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So all the people are there. Peter and John, they lay their hands on the people. And what happened in chapter 2 in Acts now is happening in chapter 8, but not in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. And you can imagine Luke doesn't describe to us in detail what's happening when the Holy Spirit came down in chapter 8. But you can imagine chapter 2 was all that super big thing. So you can imagine it's something similar. And Simon is there looking at all of that. And then when you get to verse 18, Simon can contain himself any longer. And it says, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Similar to what the people would do to the sorcerers in the city. They would offer the sorcerers money so that they would perform the magic to, for people to be healed or things like this. And now Simon is doing the same thing. And he says, give me this power. So you can see that Simon's still very much interested in power. Give me this power so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then you have like a very harsh message by Peter. He says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see... And then it's a weird verse, and I'll explain later. For I see you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And the interesting thing is, do Peter and John pray for Simon? The text doesn't say. So uh, he, he ends the story uh, sort of unfinished. And the question, well, the first time I listened, like, why didn't you give me the end of the story? You can't just stop the movie. Ten minutes left. But maybe it's because Luke wants us to reflect if we were in Simon's shoes or if we were in Peter and John's shoes, what would be our reaction in the whole thing? So, so he wants the story unfinished so that we can bring the story to our own lives and reflect on that. Now, in reflecting on this story, uh, I, I, I thought of three questions as I was studying the text during the week. I, I had three questions in my mind. The first question I had was, why did the church persevere the way they persevered? You know, if 
you know someone died because of the message you believe, and they didn't die in like a very cool way. You know, he was stoned and ripped, his clothes ripped. And you have other people, perhaps friends and families, who are being hunted down in the city and thrown in jail. And then you have to flee. You're like a refugee. You're fleeing. But then you continue to speak of this message. Why are you continuing to speak of this message? So that's one question I had. The second question I had is... Simon is this guy who is seeing all of this, hearing all of this. He is believing. He is being baptized. You know, he, he's part of the group. He is here. But then he, you know, you have this whole story of him wanting all this power and wanting to essentially buy the power to give people the spirit. So the question is, why did Simon behave like this if he was in this whole setting? So that was the second question. And the third question is, what does that have to do with me? I'm, I'm not a magician or a sorcerer. I'm not going around paying people money to perform magic for me to see. Well, I, yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> so what does this have to do with me? And I think these three questions, they are, they are interrelated in some sense. Because you see, one of the things in starting to answer the first question, in the life of Stephen, the, the point of contention was wasn't the signs and wonders which were good and godly. It, it, it was the gospel that, that was the basis for all that that was happening. And that's what the people had a problem with. And this gospel, in the way that it is portrayed in the life of Stephen, in the life of Philip, in the life of the apostles, and in the life of Jesus, it's not, uh, let's say, an add-on to their lives. Like, okay, now this is my life. I have my, let's say, my social life. I have my professional life. I have my family life. I have my academic life. And now I'm going to add this extra thing, which is my religious life. So now I have like, all these compartments of my life. And, you know, depending on where I am, I will, I'll be here. But if I'm in another setting, then it's this compartment. And then I'll just pick and choose the compartment. What Jesus understood, as well as the apostles and Stephen and uh, Philip, was that the message of God and the message of Jesus is not an add-on to your life. It's the basis from which you will see all aspects of your life. So your life is redefined by the message of the gospel. And if your life is redefined by the message, the message of the gospel becomes something, let's say, fundamental and crucial to your own identity as a, a believer in Jesus. 
So it doesn't matter what's happening in your professional life or in your family life or in your academic life, in your social life or whatever. The way you will address all those things is by uh, thinking through them from your foundation, which is the gospel. And I think that's why the church perseveres in the book of Acts. Because it doesn't matter if they are persecuting us and throwing us in prison and killing us because of this. I can't think of another way to live. Because it will be to deny who I am. Because that's how profound the gospel comes to our lives. So I think that's what's happening in the church. And I think that's the point that Simon doesn't get. He thinks his life with Christ is an add-on and not the foundation. He is looking at all the signs and wonders and he, he is reading all those things not from the basis of the gospel but from the basis of the life he used to live as a magician and as a sorcerer. And the problem is if you do that then, then things don't fit you know it, it, it's similar to like if you if you have a phone and you want to check your emails most phones will do that they, you can check your email on any phone but uh, you know some phones will be iphones the others others will be android and the, and they both open emails so they both let's say perform the same function but you need an operating system for those phones. If I try to put like an Android system on my iPhone, it's not going to work. And then I, I can't open my email. And if I try to put like an iOS system in the Android phone, it's not going to work as well. Because it's the, it's the fundamental operating system that's different. And the problem with Simon is that he's trying to live his spirituality, his life in a different operating system. And that's not, Peter says that that doesn't work. Now this may help us to see what does this story have to do with us. And here maybe I can tell you another little story. And I'll try to be very brief on this. But, but this is the life of us as people in our modern culture at the time. If you look at from the uh, 16th century all the way to the 19th century, we had this whole idea that human reason would lead us to enlightenment and to the development and we would just, you know, we would move towards this utopia and we would you know, we are getting out, we are abandoning all that tradition and myth and religion and just human reason will lead us to like this utopian future for humanity. And this was very much preached by the philosophers of the time with Kant and Hume and all of them. And in some sense, they were right, we did progress very much but at the same time when we came to the 20th century that one proved us wrong big time because we came 
to the bloodiest century that humanity ever faced with two world wars that engulfed Europe. We had the Cold War, which was, everyone was, you know, always tense uh, what was going to happen with these world powers. And, and during this whole season of, let's say, this positivist thinking and this very pessimistic thinking, the church and the theologians, they are trying to think through these issues. And some of the theologians during this, oh, human reason is the best, some of them bought this idea. And they said, you know what? Yeah, I think the way the kingdom of God will spread itself in society is through human reasoning. That's the basis from which the gospel will spread. And what is the problem with this? They're using a different operating system to think about the gospel. And so theology got very wonky, especially in Europe during this time, because they were abandoning all sorts of beliefs in the Bible because they had to sustain their independent human reasoning. And then when you get to this pessimistic moment with all the wars and everything going on, you know, the theologians of the church, they also struggle with this, like, what's happening? I thought the gospel was going to spread, and now things are, are very chaotic. And this influences the way people were thinking about the Bible as well. And in society, you begin, you begin to have this, let's say, skepticism towards uh, operating systems, let's say. They would call them grand narratives, but operating systems which can explain life. And you, you have what they call the postmodernists, that they say, yeah, no, you know what? All these grand stories to explain humanity, yeah, that doesn't work. Everything is it's just relative. It, it depends. It's all, it all depends. And in some sense, the church bought into that. And the problem is that the church began using this operating system to read the Bible as well. And we began to read the Bible in a very wonky way. You know, being very relativistic with the Bible. Like, yeah, this can mean this, but it can also mean that. It can also mean that. Eh, well, it depends on what you like. So you have all of this. But the problem is that, in some sense, we can't live with an, without an explanation for, for, for life in general. And we begin to see this in our own context as... People need big narratives to explain life. But they can't use the narratives of the past because they don't believe in the narratives of the past. So questions of ideology become to rise in society. And what explains society as a whole become very reductionistic. And it's all about uh, matters of social justice or race or gender and so on, which are all very important questions for us to think. And we should, as believers, think about this. But the question is that we shouldn't let the operating system of our culture dictate how we think about those issues. Because if we do, then we're going to be reading the Bible in a very wonky way. So what the Bible is calling us to do, what Peter calls us to do, and, and now I explain that weird verse 
in chapter 8 when Peter tells Simon, For I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter is making a reference to the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy where the people of God, they were, uh, the, pro the prophet was accusing them of worshiping other gods and leading people away from God to those other gods. And Peter is saying, when you begin to think about life from what the culture dictates, how you should think about life, it, and you, especially when you try to think about your spirituality and your life with God and Jesus, but from the, the system of our own culture, he says it's essentially the same thing as worshiping other gods and leading people astray. So it's a very harsh message. And the question is why this harsh message? Because Peter wants Simon to repent. He wants him to change his way of thinking. Now, we don't, all we have is that Simon says, oh, please pray for me that this, this doesn't happen to me. So maybe Simon understood this. Or maybe he's just afraid of the consequences of the way he's thinking. But by the story being unfinished, I think he is bringing us into the story for us to ask, how do I view my life? How do I view the way I, I think about my life individually, my life with my family, my life with the church, my life with my friends, my life with my city and society as a whole? How do I think about all the social issues of our time? Am I using the operating system of the culture to try to think about those things or am I using the word of God as my foundation to think about those things. And when this unfinished story ends, in verse 25, it says, Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, you will see constantly next them talking about speaking the word of God and preaching the word of God because it's the foundation to build your life and think everything through this. When they had finished doing this, they returned to Jerusalem. And what did, were they doing along the way? Preaching the gospels, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samarians. So the, the invitation and the challenge for us is to reflect on our own lives. How do, we, how do I think about my life? How do I think about the way that I think? about the way that I address issues in my life, with my family, with the church, with the city, with society as a whole? Am I letting our society and our culture define how I think my life or how I should view life in general? And the Bible is becoming just an add-on language of spirituality in this? Or am I being shaped by what the word of God says and I'm trying to install a different operating system because I'm not the same creature I'm a new creature now I need a different way of living life so that's the message that I think Acts is giving us why don't we bow our heads and I'll call Matt